I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Before we begin, some questions. Who will win the White House? Will there be a contested convention this summer? What about the House and Senate? People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News' Bob Schieffer called it the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver noted, few political analysts have a longer track record of success than the tight-knit team that runs the Cook Political Report. Little wonder the New York Times called it, quote, a newsletter that both parties regard as authoritative. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com slash political wire. That's cookpolitical.com slash political wire. And now to our conversation. The candidates may be in New York this week. Perhaps they're thinking about Pennsylvania, even California. But all political eyes are on Cleveland. While polls show Donald Trump crushing in the Big Apple, Ted Cruz was the big cheese in Wisconsin, and Cruz's double-digit win there significantly increased the chances of a contested Republican convention. 538's panel of experts estimates Trump will fall short of the magic 1,237 delegates. As the University of Virginia's Center of Politics told the New York Times, quote, the chances of a contested convention just went up. It's no surprise that the frontrunners say a wide-open, no-holds-barred, contested convention would devastate the Republican Party, delegitimize the entire primary process, silence the voice of the primary voters. It would bring disaster. But would it? Or instead, at this point, might a contested convention be exactly the thing Republicans should hope for? Tegan Goddard, as we all know, runs Tegan Goddard's Political Wire. He spends the totality of his waking hours and many of his sleeping ones scouring political news of the day. Tegan, thanks for joining me. You recently wrote exactly this point, that Republicans should hope for a contested convention. Do you really believe that, or are you just another die-hard political junkie who would just love a political food fight at the Republican National Convention in Cleveland? Thanks, Chris. There's no doubt that uh, I would love to watch a contested convention. Um, It really hasn't happened since I was about 10 years old in 1976. And that was actually uh, the Republican convention was rather lame as a contested convention goes because Gerald Ford managed to secure the majority of delegates on the first ballot. But what we're talking about here is a situation where it could actually go many ballots. Uh, Now, there's obviously... Uh, uh, there's obviously a chance that Donald Trump, uh, who is the front runner in delegates, could secure the necessary delegates before we even get to Cleveland. Um, but the odds are, as you pointed out, our friends at 538 suggest that uh, that is increasingly less likely. So um, in some ways, a contested convention is a good thing for the Republicans simply because the scenarios that they have are so bad Um But nonetheless, uh, my thinking has evolved since I originally said that. And I actually tried to game out five different scenarios and I ranked them from bad to worst because not one of them is actually any good. Yeah. And, and, and we'll go through, uh, each one of those. Now, when you say your thinking has evolved, I I mean, I got to call you on that because that's usually political speak for flip flopping. You didn't (laughs) flip flop, did you, Goddard? 
Uh, I might have flip flopped. You know, not necessarily. No, I mean, it's you, one you of did it. I, I would believe me. I would. I would be happy to call you out if you had. And and you 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 uh, you amplified. You clarified. You you elucidated additional points and and heightened your argument. Wouldn't you say? Don't don't all don't all great uh, great political minds evolve in their thinking? Chris? <laughs> well, that's that's one of the big questions of this campaign. Actually, is uh, is whether anyone's uh, minds have campaign have have evolved? So uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I kind of cut you off there. I, I'm happy to go through. I kind of well, I will go through. Um, you know the the various scenarios. Was there something that you wanted to add? Uh, no, before, let's, before I go let's, into that. Let's do that. Let's, okay. I mean, let's really get into, into the various things that can happen. I mean, so if you take 538 at their word, and, and they're not the only ones. There are other, uh, there are other uh, media entities, the New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, two prominent ones who also, in their delegate counts, they see Donald Trump probably falling short of the majority by the time the voting is over in June. So if you go through each of those scenarios uh, – it's increasingly likely that uh, I mean we we have some contests still to go, but it looks pretty likely that Donald Trump will be short as we head into uh, Cleveland uh, in July. Okay, well let, let me let me take you through these. You're you're jumping out of order, which you know is not surprising. But uh, so so let you, let's go with the, with what you just said, and then we'll go back to the possibility um, that Trump wins the the twelve thirty seven. So so one possibility is Trump falls short of a majority, but secures the twelve thirty seven before the convention. H- how does that happen? I thought that you know you get the, the you go through. I mean that's what the primary process is about is about getting these delegates. So how could he? fall short in the primaries, um, but still secure uh, 1237 before the convention? Sure. Now, there's a, there's a variety of ways. There's a certain number of unbound delegates, uh, first of all, uh, which you know do not have allegiances to any candidate whatsoever. There are 168, quote, RNC delegates um, who we don't know who they're in favor of, although the, 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 the good money suggests that those would be on establishment uh, friendly candidates of which Donald Trump is not. And then there's, you know, the delegates that some of these other candidates won, uh, like Marco Rubio. I think Marco Rubio won 171 delegates uh, before he ended up dropping out of the race. It's a question right now. He's trying to keep their loyalty in case this goes to a goes to a second ballot and he can play a, a role of kingmaker or some or, or some sort. Um, but it, but it's unclear whether he'll be able to do that. And each state, you know, sets their own rules on these delegates. And so some of those Rubio one delegates may actually be free agents at this point. And if that's the case, there are free delegates that Trump could spend the month before, you know, before the convention, after the voting ends and before the convention, trying to gather up some of these delegates. People have talked about, could he buy these delegates? Could he could he woo them uh, with money or certainly uh, with other other things? And uh, his own campaign has suggested that there could be, you know, all expense paid trips to some of his resorts, um, golfing outings, things like that. And I, I would expect that Donald Trump will spend the month before the convention playing golf with an awful lot of potential uh, delegates and uh, delegates who, who could support him at some point. So that's that that is still a scenario, and that that would be the scenario that we had in 1976, when uh, Gerald Ford was man- managed to pull out the majority uh, before the voting began at the convention, even though he had not wrapped it up uh, in the delegate fight, in the primary and caucus fight. Um, and what's interesting about that is that Donald Trump has hired 
Paul Manafort, uh, who led that effort for Gerald Ford. So uh, he does have some interesting, uh, some interesting artillery waiting if that if that's where the fight moves uh, in terms of some of these unbound delegates and trying to secure them. Yeah, he he does seem to be uh, you know shoring up in in that area. In addition, of course, he knows of and has access to some really really great golf courses. I mean, really the the best golf courses in the world that he you know he could he could bring <laughs> folks to. Uh, I, I don't you know I don't want to I don't want to turn you into a campaign finance um, expert. Um, and equally, I don't want to be naive myself. Um, but serious question. Can he do that? I mean, are you, you know, this, this sense of this idea of buying delegates. I mean, there are all sorts of, obviously, there are all sorts of campaign finance rules. There are all sorts of, you know, pay to play. I mean, there's so many rules. Are, are there not these types of rules? And, and you may not know the campaign finance, and they certainly wouldn't hold you to, uh, you know, that, that type of, you know, knowing that reform um, and knowing the regulations. But are, are they able to do that type of thing? Is that okay? Well, according to I'm not I'm far from an expert on this, but there's been a few articles that have been written about this, and it, it seems to be unclear, and and it seems to be a gray area. Um, it, 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 it there are a lot of things that are not explicitly written out. Um, that said, there's still the political reality where if you're running around and handing out checks, that's probably politically a horrible thing, and it would probably cause some of your other delegates to. To bolt, uh, and so there's a balancing act here that tr- Trump would need to woo the delegates in ways that he uh, that that he knows how uh, without turning off other delegates, and so it's a it's a bit of a balancing act, and it's also probably a gray area in what's possible. But I will say this: it's it's it it has been less staked out in campaign finance law about what you can and can't do with regard to delegates. Than, it, than some other areas of campaigns and, and elections. So you can't buy votes, but when it comes to delegates, it's a little uh, little less clear. Yeah, I, I would imagine it is. Okay, so, so let's go on to um, a second scenario. And, and, and in some level, this may be the least probable, which is just insane that that's the case. But uh, Trump wins at least uh, 1,237 delegates. So he, he reaches the level um, uh, and, and, and gets there. Any chance that that if that does happen, and and you know, I, I think it's fair to say that, men, you know, many if not most folks don't think it will get to that. But but if it does, um, any way to deny him the nomination? I think that would be absolutely impossible at that point for Republicans to deny him the nomination. Which doesn't mean they won't try. It doesn't mean that there are some elements of the party that will realize that it would be a disaster to nominate him. And will do anything they can to try to prevent that. But uh, from, for all practical purposes, that's really where the, even the establishment of the party has kind of set the bar that if uh, if one of the candidates wins a majority, uh, then they become the nominee. So um, it would be extremely hard. And, and it's very possible as we sit here and record this, you know, more than a week before the New York primary, we, we have a, a, a group of polls, uh, every recent poll taken in New York uh, suggests that Donald Trump is breaking 50% in all of those polls. And if he breaks 50% statewide, and if he breaks 50% in each of the congressional districts, Donald Trump will win all of the delegates in New York. Uh, and that that would be an extraordinary thing. First of all, it's a very large state with a lot of delegates at stake. Uh, but it, it certainly would uh, soften the blow of losing Wisconsin the way he did, and also soften the blow of losing some of these delegates 
to Ted Cruz in some of the hand-to-hand combat at some of the state conventions, you know, things that we've seen in states like Colorado, where uh, where Ted Cruz has simply outmaneuvered Donald Trump uh, when it comes to some of when it comes to gathering up some of these other delegates that are at stake. That, that's the terrific thing about politics is uh, following the New York primary, we very well could do this whole conversation, you know, totally again with a, a whole new set of possibilities and, and scenarios. I mean, you know, that's what uh, part of what makes it so uh, so entertaining uh, and so interesting that uh, it can always just change. Um, next scenario is Cruz wins on a second ballot. So talk to me about that. How would a second ballot work? And, you know, it, would, it seems to me, and you just mentioned places like Colorado and, and obviously Wisconsin and even going back to Iowa, um, among the, the political credit that Cruz has gotten is that he's, he's very well organized and certainly much better organized than Trump. Um, is that what would play into a second ballot win? Is that type of political uh, organization important in that, in that situation? Or is it just that? That no, no, no. Trump is you know the, the the never Trump movement then comes together in a second ballot, and it, it does not have much to do with Cruz's organizing capabilities. No, that's that's exactly what I what I mean. And whether you know, and when I write second ballot, uh, I could have meant third ballot, fourth ballot, fifth ballot. At some point, I think that Ted Cruz is in pretty good position. If Donald Trump does not have a majority on the first ballot, that might be the highest highest number he gets as as we get to subsequent ballots. Uh, so it, it's expected that uh, some of Trump's delegates would defect at that point if he didn't have a majority. Some of those uh, delegates that were chosen and that are bound to Trump in the first ballot actually have their loyalties elsewhere. May not be they may not be to Ted Cruz, but Ted Cruz at that point may actually be the candidate that is seen as better than Trump by a lot of these uh, Republican delegates. Um, and then I, I do think that your point about you know that hand to hand combat in the states. In some of these state delegate fights that we see, uh, Ted Cruz is very well organized, and so I don't think we'll know. I, I think I, th- I think we know now that there are that he's making great inroads in securing delegates that are otherwise up for grabs, um, and, and Trump is losing this fight. What we don't know is how many of those are happening behind the scenes, where we won't know until a second or third ballot um, if he's been able to put his own loyalists into. Uh, into some of these spots and that as soon as we get to a second ballot, they're then free to vote uh, for the candidate of their choice. So anyway, that's going to be extreme. That That's where we actually get to the really exciting part of the convention when we go to multiple ballots, because that's where deals happen. And, you know, Donald Trump is the supposed ultimate deal maker, um, and he could possibly make deals as well to secure ballots from some of the other candidates, John Kasich, uh, obviously, we'll have some delegates. Marco Rubio possibly has some delegates that will still be loyal to him. Um, and then there's the unbound delegates. Um, but that that's going to be a f- complete free for all at that point. So, again, as I as I rank these from bad to worse, this is when it starts getting very, very dicey for the Republican Party, because all this shows is divisions in the party. It does not show a coalescing of a majority at this point. You know, that's a terrific point that you make. Um, it- Trump's deal making. I mean, it really could come down to Cruz's uh, organization and his organizing abilities versus 
Trump's deal-making abilities. And, and it, you know, it does seem to be true. I mean, you don't hear uh, among all the folks who, you know, argue against Trump and, and you know, talk negatively and, and, you know, how he's, you know, ridiculous and the things he can't do. There's not much discussion that, you know, well, the guy doesn't know how to cut a deal. I mean, he, he does seem to know how to, how to make a deal, if not uh, how to define the art of the deal. Um, and and that's I haven't heard that point elsewhere. That really could be uh, you know an, an interesting aspect if it does go to a second, third, uh, you know, fourth ballot. Well, in in the other point to, to to the other point of this, if you get to a second or third ballot, is it's not just Donald Trump and Ted Cruz at that point. There are John Kasich presumably would be there, although there's some some question whether or not the rules of the convention will allow him to be on a ballot. But assuming that the establishment uh, players, uh, the GOP insiders, are able to actually change the rules to allow another candidate like John Kasich or perhaps even Paul Ryan on the ballot, um, all of a sudden that's somebody who could uh, start attracting some of these delegate votes. So there's, you know, Republican strategist and friend of Political Wire, Alex Castellanos, has said that he actually thinks that if, um, he, he actually thinks that if Trump collapses, so will Cruz. Um, and that's when there will be this big swing over to the, to the establishment choice, whether it's someone like John Kasich or whether it's someone like uh, Paul Ryan or someone else entirely. Okay. Scenario number four, which I think should be called, uh, you know, planets collide. Trump, Trump and Cruz join forces, as you wrote, uh, as like, as unlikely as an alliance between the Donald and Lion Ted might seem today, stranger things have happened in politics. Tegan, you have followed politics as long and as closely as anybody I know. What has happened stranger than that? <laughs> well, sometimes you have to go maybe to House of Cards. You know, some, as I've talked to some friends, they've called this the House of Cards scenario um, because it does seem odd. But if you go back in history and you look at some um, unlikely pairings, one of the most famous unlikely pairings, pairings was that between John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. They really didn't like each other. And we know that John F. Kennedy's brother, Robert, I uh, absolutely hated Lyndon Johnson. Uh, nonetheless, they found a reason to join forces, uh, to, to join together in order to win the 1960 presidential election, um, and they were successful doing so. This would obviously be an intra-party fight, and as, uh, you know, as you noted, you know, after Donald Trump calls his main rival, Lion Ted, it may, <laughs> seem, it may seem quite unlikely to actually put them together, but... If, if the two of them together, so if we go to, go to that previous scenario where all of a sudden there's a third player, there's the, some establishment candidate attracting votes, and it seems like that, that candidate is drawing off votes from both Trump and Cruz, you could see a situation where the two of them say, you know something, we're going to have this stolen away from us if we don't join together right now. And so whether it's a Trump-Cruz ticket or a Cruz-Trump ticket, um, that's the type of thing. I mean, Pat Buchanan, a former White House speechwriter, he you know he said that's the ticket that will set the country on fire, and I, I don't I don't think that he meant it in the way that I'm taking it, but I think it really could set the country on fire. Um, but nonetheless, he he would he sees that, and, and many conservatives see that as a way to join these uh, outsider candidates together uh, in unison against the establishment and finally put the establishment down. And if either Donald Trump or Ted Cruz sees that nomination being tugged away from them, uh, they, they may be forced into this alliance. 
Okay, and then the counter uh, to that is scenario number five, the GOP establishment prevails. You ranked this as the uh, the worst of the options of the of the potential outcomes. Um, how does this happen, and why is it so bad? Well, it's it's bad because you simply have uh, two candidates, Ted Cruz and Donald Trump, who, uh, by all accounts, at that point will have seventy or eighty percent or even more of the delegates at stake, and yet neither of them becomes the nominee. And so, uh, you know, this is this is kind of the that would be an effort for Republicans to deny the outsiders entirely um, at the cost of something great. You have 70 or 80 percent of their supporters, uh, you know, protesting this ticket, possibly not coming up to vote, possibly running third party. A lot of things have been threatened. Uh, but nonetheless, this is just, just this just does not seem to me the type of move which would unify the party ahead of the election. You know that said, it may be. It, it, in, and in fact, I, I've, I've also I also believe that it's the type of thing that could ultimately lead to the breaking up of the Republican Party. I think that the forces that both Donald Trump and Ted Cruz have shown exist here around the Republican primary process and in the party itself um, might not with, be able to withstand such a move like that. So I, I kind of see that as the ultimate disaster. Um, it, it would make uh, you know past conventions. Like uh, the Chicago Convention, Democratic Convention in 1968, look, you know, pretty tame in comparison. And and I want to ask you about, uh, you know, the the, the half life of the the Republican Party uh, with you know some of these these uh, scenarios, and whether there is a possibility that maybe you know can can the party come out somehow stronger at the end of all of this. But before I, I get to that, um, let's go a little bit further on on this point. So. Um, the GOP establishment prevails. Uh, you've kind of, you know, been the, the names that you've been hinting at, and what you know, what you certainly see out there are Kasich and uh, and Paul Ryan. Um, you know, taking House Speaker Paul Ryan insists he promises that he doesn't want to be his party's presidential nominee. Of course, the House Speaker also didn't want to be the House Speaker. <laughs> this poor guy never gets what he wants, it seems. Um, now he's running what many call a whisper campaign. Uh, you've seen them, the videos for his Confident America campaign, the social media about how disgusted he is with the political process, uh, the fundraising for the Republican candidates, the meetings in Israel and Germany and the Middle East. It's, I, I, I was trying to think what it felt like to me. It feels to me like he, he's set a buffet, he's put a bib around his neck, he's opened his mouth wide open. Um, a, any chance that he'll be force-fed the nomination? It's a really interesting, uh, interesting point. What is Paul Ryan doing um, here? People, people have suggested that he's doing Exactly that. He's laying the groundwork to be the choice of the convention, and he can deny it all he wants. No one's really going to believe him because he denied that he wanted to be speaker, and he, there he sits in the speaker's chair himself. Um, but when it comes to uh, – there are alternative reasons why he may be doing what he's doing. Let's say Ted Cruz or Donald Trump does become the nominee, and Paul Ryan wants to be in a position where he is still setting – uh, in, a, in a party which very likely will not be unified uh, after the convention, that he would be able to at least set the agenda of the Republican Party. In, a, in an era in which there are really no brokers, uh, Paul Ryan would try to be that broker, would try to be the one who sets the agenda. He is the one who has, at least so far, brought together the various factions of the House of Representatives, You know, something that John Boehner couldn't do, which is why Paul Ryan is speaker today. 
And if he actually does have that skill, uh, at least he could be the guy who, who tries to create some unity for the party. And then there's a, the third scenario that Paul Ryan wants to run for president, just not this time, and that he's willing to cede the election in 2016 to Democrats, bide his time and run in 2020. Um, a lot of people have suggested that Paul Ryan, that is his ultimate goal. That is what he wants to do. Um, and whether it's this time or whether it's four years from now, um, he might get his chance at some point. And I guess there's also the the down ballot races. I mean, the Senate and the House, the uh, various governor races, and more. Um, and and yeah, I mean, usually, and it, you've kind of pointed this out. Usually, the top of the ticket sets the direction. And you know, you know, obviously, locally, and and you know, we remember Kentucky um, previously, and uh, you know, other other campaigns um, where the local issues can can you know. Sorry, don't I don't mean this. Uh, it can trump the uh, you know what's going on at the top of the ticket. Um, no pun. I really didn't mean that to be a pun. It just came out badly. Um, it, 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 are you kind of hinting at? And it would seem to me you know perfectly reasonable that that Ryan is perhaps setting things up so that okay you know Cruz does become the nominee. Trump does become the nominee. He can kind of draw a line right underneath that and say you know America please pay you know pay no attention to what's going on at the top of the ticket. You know we need the House, we need the Senate, we need the state houses. You know we need the governor mansion, the governor's mansions. Um, here is what the republic, the rest of the Republican Party stands for. Please go vote. You know vote Republican locally. Um, and do do whatever you have to do at the top of the ballot. Could is that kind of a little bit what you're saying? He may be, um, you know, hermetically sealing off the presidential race. Sure, I, I and I think that the key to the key to this is to take a look at where the money's going. Um, most of the big Republican donors at this point are sitting on the sidelines. They're not interested in getting involved in a in a primary battle between Ted Cruz and Donald Trump. Uh, they don't like either of these candidates for the most part. There are some exceptions, but they, they're not interested in either of these candidates. And so when it comes to the general election, I, they may still be on the sidelines when it comes to the presidential race. And I think Paul Ryan wants to make sure that that money can flow into some of the Senate races so the Republicans can hold on to the Senate um, so that they can hold on to their majority in the House. And that may be what Paul Ryan is doing here, making sure that there is a place for that money to land, that 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 they feel safe. Um but in a, in, a, in it would be very interesting if that money did not flow to the presidential race. It seems unlikely that Donald Trump, who has really spent very little of his own money relative to other candidates um, who are self-funders in this primary fight, um, whether he would actually spend his own money on a general election. It's far from clear that he would do that, that he would simply try to raise money in traditional ways. Um, and as controversial a candidate as he is, it's uh, highly unlikely he would be successful, certainly competing with someone like Hillary Clinton. You know, and Ted Cruz is the same. Uh, Ted Cruz is just a very polarizing figure within his party. I don't think there's almost anyone in the U.S. Senate who even likes him. And he's the kind of guy who uh, would also have a hard time attracting attracting donors. So Paul Ryan is probably... Uh, that that's probably part of his goal, and, and I suspect that Paul Ryan doesn't know doesn't know exactly what he's doing at this point, but he's trying to make himself ready for one of these things to happen. So I think if he were to bet, as we went through the various five scenarios, if we were to bet on Paul Ryan becoming the nominee and kind of stealing it away from both uh, Trump or in Cruz and Kasich for that matter. Uh, that, that that the backlash would be enormous, and that, that that's probably not a situation that he wants to be, find himself in. 
but uh, he would certainly be positioning himself well for uh, a presidential race four years from now. Um, and then certainly uh, just keeping the majority in the House so that he can stay Speaker. And to close out, um, th- this this future of the Republican Party and the, you know, if Trump wins, the party's going to be destroyed. And if Cruz wins, the party's going to be destroyed. And if the, uh, you know, nomination gets taken from the both of them and handed to a, an establishment candidate, the party's going to be destroyed. And and, and I, I understand all of that. And a lot of people feel that way. And, and that seems to be a lot of the um, you know, a lot of the current thinking. Um, what, you know, one of your touchstones is House of Cards. Uh, one of mine, of course, is Game of Thrones. And, you know, what, what the, the one who's up is all of a sudden always down and the alliances, uh, you know, you think that Cruz and Trump is a weird alliance or, you know, LBJ and JFK, uh, you know, and House of Cards, there have been the alliances and, and, you know, same in Game of Thrones. And I just can't help but feel that the, you know, the talk of the demise of the Republican Party um, just might be premature. And, and is it not, you know, just as easy for things to somehow turn around and for them to kind of capture some of this anti-establishment and get smart and, and, you know, integrate it, you know, into who they are um, and, and, and build and, and kind of come back stronger. Is that possible or is it just way too late for that? And this has just exposed so much uh, hypocrisy within the party um, that, that, you know, it's, it's just, that's just not possible one way or the other, the party's damaged. What's your estimation of what you're seeing and in, in your own intuition around, um, you know, regardless of the outcome, how, how damaged is the party? It's a, it's a great question. And I think that you, you would be wise under most circumstances to, to suggest that, you know, calling out, you know, the, the end of a major political party, something that rarely, rarely happens, rarely has happened in our history, uh, that would be an extreme position. But I, but I actually think that we are at a situation today uh, where the, these forces have been building over many years, uh, really since the, the Bush administration, if not before that, where the, the, the forces that kept the Republican Party bound together um, have now frayed and are now on the verge of snapping entirely. Uh, and that once that happens, the party won't ever be put back together, certainly not in its current form. Now, there may be some, there may be, you know, that the, the extreme part is that the Republican Party itself won't exist anymore. I mean, the Repul- a Republican Party may rebuild itself after this happens, and that's certainly happened in, in the past. This may not be a situation where Republicans go the way of the Whigs and just disappear entirely, although that could happen as well. Uh, but something is going to reemerge here because the, there are factions in this party that simply do not agree with each other. They simply do not. There's nothing tying them together anymore. I think that the George Bush presidency, why history will view it as one of the worst in our history, is because he, 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 he helped break that, those bonds between the party. The, the, if, you, if you think of the three different factions that the Republican parties have, the, the evangelical Christian uh, wing of the party, the you know the establishment Wall Street Republican section of the party and the national security hawks those three different groups that Ronald Reagan pulled together so so uh, amazingly and and rode that to power and kept that power for several decades George Bush broke those when he bungled two wars in Afghanistan and Iraq he lost the faith of a lot of the national security establishment when he blew apart the federal budget deficit. 
Um, and when obviously Wall Street uh, went into a massive, you know, massive uh, tank um, in in 2008, uh, he, he lost a lot of the, the, the traditional Wall Street Republicans. About the only people who left who stayed with Bush as he left the presidency were these evangelical Christians, the Christian conservatives. Um, and that's not enough to actually make this base. Now, Ted Cruz certainly has that group, but he doesn't have the others. And someone like Donald Trump has managed to actually run against the party directly on, on two key issues. One is free trade and, and the other is immigration. And he's run against what the establishment wants in terms of the, the policies that the Republican, the traditional Republican establishment wants. And he's run against them and he's gathered a significant amount of support. Now, it may not be a majority of support, but it's certainly enough to cause Republicans a lot of problems. These forces that have that we're seeing that this these tensions that we're seeing right now in this presidential race are tensions that are building have been building for many, many years. And I personally don't think that the Republican Party can stay, uh, can can come out of this in a united fashion. I think it's very very unlikely. I mean, you never know in politics, but I think it's very unlikely in that each of those five scenarios that seem to be the possible scenarios that we have right now, as I said, I rank them from bad to worst. Each of them is going to exacerbate the tensions. None of them is going to unify the party as we head into 2016, into the fall election. Yeah, tellingly, none of your options was labeled good for the Republican <laughs> Party. Not this year. <laughs> Not this year. Yeah, okay, well, you know, maybe they'll have another one in uh, in four years. Tegan Goddard runs Tegan Goddard's Political Wire. Uh, thank you, as always, for making time. Uh, great to chat with you. I am Chris Reback, and this is Political Wire Conversations.